Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 698 for the 19th of June, 2020. This week, the latest iPads from Apple can be bought with an overpriced keyboard and an overpriced pencil. If you add those extras, you'll almost have a computer, and it might replace your portable computer. We'll take a look at the pluses and minuses. In short circuits, when you're looking for the cause of a problem or considering an upgrade, you might need to find out what's under the computer's hood. Specky, HW Info 64, and Crystal Disk Info are three tools that provide insight, and you'll want at least two of them. In spare parts, only on the website, Adobe's big mid-year update was delivered to Creative Cloud users this week, and the additions range from fun toys to highly desirable new and improved features. Facebook launched an initiative to register voters this week, and will offer some new capabilities. One allows users to hide annoying political ads, and a second reveals how much is being spent on Facebook ads for presidential and congressional races. And 20 years ago, online shopping was just beginning to be something people thought that they might be willing to trust. Let's look back a few years. In May 2010, I wrote these words. Regardless of how cool it is, I don't own an iPad and I don't plan to own one anytime in the near future. Well, several years later, I bought one and I have just replaced it with a new iPad Pro. There are advantages. There are frustrations. Let's consider both. Apple is positioning the iPad Pro as a replacement for a notebook or convertible computer with an advertising campaign that starts with, your next computer is not a computer. So if you're in the market for a portable device, maybe you're looking at Microsoft's Surface Pro line, at other Windows-based convertible systems, at Apple's MacBook machines, and at iPads. If so, perhaps this little discussion will be useful. To be very clear, the iPad Pro is not a computer in the way that a Windows PC or an Apple MacBook is. It won't run programs intended for a MacBook, but only apps that can be downloaded from the Apple App Store. In this way, it's more like a Chromebook, a very fast, elegant Chromebook. The iPad Pro 12.9-inch model is about the size of my Microsoft Surface Pro, when both devices have keyboards attached, the iPad seems considerably heavier than the Surface Pro. Even so, both are light enough that carrying them around isn't a problem. But reading might be if you find yourself holding the device up to read while you're lying supine. Until now, my primary use for the iPad had been reading ebooks. That's going to change. This would be an ideal device to take to a meeting or to use in a library. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, I attend very few meetings. And also, unfortunately, definitely unfortunately, most libraries are still closed. But I'll be ready when they are. And one of the primary reasons is that keyboard. 
The iPad Pro is, in fact, the device on which I wrote most of the script for this podcast. So what about that keyboard? Apple sells an add-on keyboard for the iPad Pro. It is obscenely expensive, and it doesn't fold all the way back the way a keyboard does on the Microsoft Surface Pro. That's a problem if you want to use it as a tablet sometimes, and with a keyboard attached other times. But the fact that the keyboard doesn't fold back actually makes the iPad Pro more usable than the Surface Pro because the keyboard on the Microsoft device flops around unless you place it on a desk. You could save money by selecting a Bluetooth keyboard not made by Apple, but you'll have to give up some of the features if you do. The Magic Keyboard isn't a Bluetooth device. Instead, it snaps into place on the iPad and is held there firmly by magnets. The back of the iPad case has three connections that mate with three pins on the keyboard, so the keyboard doesn't need batteries, and it doesn't have to be paired with the iPad. It also has to remain attached to the iPad, and that could be a problem for somebody who's used to having the keyboard a few inches away from the tablet. The keyboard holds the iPad so that it appears to float. Okay, Apple, that's a really cool effect but it means that the rear lip of the keyboard needs to have a very large, unused, and unusable area. Why? When the physical keyboard is attached, the on-screen keyboard disappears. At first, that seems like a reasonable choice. However, there are tools on the virtual keyboard that can be handy even when the physical keyboard is attached. Of course, a setting does exist for keeping the on-screen keyboard on-screen. Your mission is to find that setting. And then there is the virtual keyboard itself. There's Apple's virtual keyboard, or you can use Google's Gboard. The iPad virtual keyboard has deficiencies that limit its utility. The full-size keyboard doesn't allow the use of swipe gestures to type, and the keyboard that does enable swipe typing is too small for me to use. Google's Gboard is installed by default on Android phones, so I'm familiar with its operation, and I installed it as the default on the iPad. Because Google and Apple can't work cooperatively, some features of Gboard interfere with the default keyboard. The partial solution involved uninstalling the default virtual keyboard, but that eliminated a few features that depended on the iPad virtual keyboard. The most serious of these is the ability to use text replacement, which could be used to replace short bits of text, like TBWW, for example, with TechBiter Worldwide. Fortunately, there is a utility program that replicates the function with buttons on an alternate keyboard. This is an attractive feature when the physical keyboard is attached, because there is an option to display the virtual keyboard. So I've chosen to display the alternate virtual keyboard when the physical keyboard is attached. The utility is called WordBoard, and it has a few advantages over the text expansion application that requires the user to remember all of the abbreviations. You simply look at the buttons on the screen, and they tell you what they do. The iPad Pro is also the first iPad that accepts a mouse. The iPad has a touch screen, of course, and the Magic Keyboard has a trackpad, but you might prefer to have a mouse. No previous iPad could accommodate a mouse. The new third-generation iPad models can. Being Apple, though, the mouse function has been enabled in a way that's just slightly unusual. 
The mouse is considered to be an accessibility tool for those who have physical limitations that preclude the use of the touchscreen or the trackpad. Because it's classified that way, the presentation is unusual and the controls aren't where you might reasonably expect them to be. Lynda.com offers an hour-long class by Nick Brazi, who covers the basics of using an iPad. If you have not used an iPad previously, this will be a very well-spent hour. And even if you do have experience with earlier iPads, you'll probably learn some useful tricks. Many libraries provide online access from your home to lynda.com resources, so check your library's website. I had forgotten that Apple, being Apple, had to make scrolling with a mouse work exactly the opposite way that it works on Windows devices, and even the exact opposite of the way it worked on earlier Apple computers. I may have forgotten that because I corrected the problem long ago on my MacBook when I bought it several years ago. Here's what happens. On Windows, scrolling up or moving down the screen is accomplished by rotating the mouse wheel toward you. On Apple devices, scrolling up is accomplished by rolling the mouse wheel away from you. Now, neither of these is necessarily right or wrong. But the Apple method can be confusing when you're used to the method used on Microsoft and Linux systems. Prior to 2011, it was also the method used by Apple. Apple calls this natural scrolling, and you flick up to scroll down. Fixing it is easy. Just open the General tab in Settings, choose Trackpad and Mouse, and click the switch to turn natural scrolling off. By the way, ignore that advice if you are a Mac-only person who prefers natural scrolling on your other Apple devices. Now, I mentioned earlier that the iPad doesn't run programs that are designed for a MacBook, but those who subscribe to Microsoft 365, which was previously called Office 365, can read and edit files on the iPad. The apps are free to download and use, but those who use them without a subscription will be limited to viewing documents. If you have an Apple Pencil, yeah, there's another expense for you, or even a finger, you can use Microsoft Ink to write directly on a Word document. I've started using this as a quick and easy way to send reminders to myself. If I think of something late at night when I'm reading, I can open the Word document that I use for notes, scribble a few words there with my finger or the pen, and then save the file. The notes are available the next morning on the Windows computer. If you choose to buy the pen despite its absurd price, it is held in place on the right side of the case, or the top side if you attach the keyboard, and it charges by induction. The earlier version of the pencil could be charged by plugging it into the iPad, and I have to wonder how many people broke either the pencil or the iPad by doing that. The alternative involved buying a USB cable with a socket for the pencil. Induction charging is slower, but if you keep the mouse attached to the iPad case except when you're using it, it'll always be fully charged. Fully charged pencil. Consider just a decade ago how someone might have looked at you if you talked about charging a pencil. I have always held tablets in vertical mode when I'm reading, but that's nearly impossible with the keyboard attached. Reluctantly, I started reading books in landscape mode and immediately realized that the screen on the larger iPad Pro is entirely adequate for two-page view. The iPad Pro is also an ideal choice for watching videos or casting them to your television. If you have a cable television provider that Apple knows about, and it seems to know about every provider, 
you can log into your cable account to gain access to most of the content available on your television. But there is what I consider a major annoyance with the camera. The latest cameras in smartphones have special portrait modes that analyze the image and then blur the background, much the same way that photographers who use larger cameras, and not to say real cameras, with wide aperture lenses. Cameras in phones and tablets have only one aperture, and it is the lens mechanics that give lenses depth of field on a standard camera. As a result, backgrounds can be distracting when the photograph is taken with smartphones. The portrait mode eliminates that. But here's the thing. Only the front camera, the one that faces the user, has this mode on the iPad. That is possibly the most disappointing aspect of the iPad Pro. Even my Android phone has a portrait mode for both the front-facing and rear-facing cameras. The fact that Apple's engineers couldn't manage to provide that capability on their extremely expensive iPad Pro is a colossal disappointment. Oh, and the iPad Pro has just a single USB port. Just one. Attach the keyboard and you do have two ports. Just two? And I'm not complaining here. One is plenty. Really. Until now, iPads have had lightning connectors. USB-C is a much better choice. When Apple decided to use lightning technology in 2012, it was a great leap forward. Eight years later, there's something better. USB-C technology can support devices up to 100 watts, and data transmission speeds are much higher, up to 10 gigabits per second. So attaching a USB hub to that single USB-C port makes it possible to connect a lot of devices. Most of the USB-C hubs provide two or more USB 3 ports and possibly a card reader. Others include HDMI output, a headphone jack, a wired network connection, and power input so that users can connect the iPad's power supply to the port and charge the iPad while using it. Some of these connect to the iPad magnetically, others use a cable. So what's the bottom line here? Well, I'm not going to give the iPad Pro a cat rating. If it does what you need, it's about as close to perfect as we can get with today's technology. If you absolutely need to be able to run applications such as full versions of Microsoft 365 or Adobe Creative Cloud, you're going to wish you had bought a Microsoft Surface Pro or an Apple MacBook Pro. The iPad Pro will delight you if your primary needs are portability, media consumption, note-taking, writing communications, and even photography and video production and editing. In other words, if you need a hammer, buy a hammer. If you need a screwdriver, buy a screwdriver. Match the tool to the task at hand. You'll find additional details about the various iPad Pro models on the Apple website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat.
In short circuits, when a Windows computer is misbehaving, or if you're thinking about updating some of the components, it is helpful to be able to see what's in the computer and how the various pieces are working. Three free utility applications make this possible. Those who have desktop computers can just open the case and look inside to see what's there. It's a lot more difficult with a notebook computer and all but impossible with tablets and convertible devices. And even if you do open the desktop and look inside, you can't see how well any given component is working, unless it's visibly on fire or emitting smoke. If you see fire or smoke, it is easy to determine that a component has failed. Absent smoke or fire, though, what's needed is the equivalent of a physician's stethoscope. And three such applications exist. Actually, there are far more than three, but there are three I really like. Specky, HW Info 64, and Crystal Disk Info. There's quite a bit of overlap among these programs, but each has advantages and each does something specific that the others don't. So let's take a look. We'll start with Specky, which is a basic hardware viewer. Piriform had only a single version when it had the program and it was free. CCleaner acquired the utility and created a $20 Pro version that offers automatic updates and premium support. If you are thinking about getting the Pro version, spend another 10 bucks and get the Pro versions of CCleaner, Defragler, and Recover. Otherwise, just stick with the free version. It doesn't have as many features as HWinfo64, but it does have a clear interface. You'll see categories such as operating system, CPU, RAM, optical drives, and more in the left column. When you select one of those options, you'll see an expanded list of components on the right. Because the interface makes Specky so easy to use, it is ideal for new users and for those who don't want to be overwhelmed by a flood of information. Next is Crystal Disk Info. Although both Specky and HWinfo64 display status information about the disk drives in the computer, Crystal Disk Info is a specialized tool that does just that one job and does it very well. You'll see a list of all the disks installed in the computer across the top of the interface, one entry for each physical disk. You'll see the disk's drive letter below the temperature, which is reported in centigrade. If there's more than one logical disk on a given physical device, you'll see a letter for each logical drive. At a glance, you'll see health status indicators for both general drive health and temperature. Blue is good, yellow indicates caution, and a red indicator means it's time for an emergency disk backup before the disk fails. Crystal Disk Info displays information from the Self-Monitoring Analysis and Reporting Technology Protocol. That's SMART. It's been included in hard disks manufactured for the last decade or more. If there's a shortcoming to Crystal Disk Info, it's the lack of information about what some of the displayed values mean. Rotation rate, power on count and hours, temperature, and health status. Those are all obvious. For information about some of the smart parameters, you're referred to a Wikipedia article where you'll find a list of parameters and a description of what they mean. And last in my trio, HWinfo64. It can display the temperature of each CPU in the computer. 
the smart drive information, the name of the computer, the computer's manufacturer, and there might even be a setting somewhere that reveals which technicians actually assembled the machine. All right, I'm kidding about that last one, but just about anything else you might ever want to know about what's in the box and how well it's working will be there. Because there is so much information, sometimes the biggest challenge is finding what you want to see. Although it lacks benchmarking tools, as do Crystal Disk Info and Specky, those who need benchmarking make up a very distinct minority of users, and in an earlier time probably would have spent all their time turning 1956 Chevys into hot rods. You'll find all the basic computer information about the CPU, motherboard, memory, buses, disk drive, network connections, and ports. Dig a little deeper and you'll find CPU core temperature and other data that's returned by sensors that are installed in the computer. To see the sensor data, you will need to open the sensor section, and it warns about possibly not playing nice with all hardware. So, if you're looking for the greatest amount of information, HWINFO64 is what you need. If you prefer just the basics in a very easy-to-read format, pick Specky. Either way, though, download a copy of Crystal Disk Info for its expertise in monitoring your system's hard disks. You'll find links for all three this week on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. No special tools are needed to find out what's in spare parts, but you will need a browser because that section is only on the website. And this week you'll find these articles. Adobe's big mid-year update was delivered to Creative Cloud users this week, and the additions range from fun toys to highly desirable new and improved features. Facebook launched an initiative to register voters this week, and it'll offer some new capabilities. One allows users to hide annoying political ads, and a second reveals how much is being spent on Facebook ads for presidential and congressional races. And 20 years ago, online shopping was just beginning to be something people thought that they might be willing to trust. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.